Today's sermon text reading comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, J.D. John chapter 11 is known as the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, and understandably so, that is the main event in this chapter whenever a dead man is raised to life. That will always be the main point. But we are going to save that main point until next week. That will be the story of Jesus actually raising Lazarus. And in this paragraph, we will see that before Jesus raises Lazarus, before he ministers to Lazarus in this most remarkable way, he wants to first minister to these two sisters. And specifically, Jesus wants to minister to Martha. Now, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, from what we can piece together, they likely come from an upper-class family. They probably were not loaded, but they certainly were in the upper echelon of culture. When we get to John chapter 12, this will be the story of Mary washing the feet of Jesus. And Mary there is going to use very expensive perfume, the kind of perfume that only the wealthy would have owned. And you see this morning in verse 19 that many Jewish people traveled two miles to bring their condolences to this family. If you had a large number of people that were willing to travel two miles, this proves that this family has some significance in the culture. So the family of Lazarus, they have some money, they have some influence in the community. Now, this is certainly not the main point of John chapter 11. It is not the main point of this sermon. But perhaps real quickly, it is worth noting that Jesus is as close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as to any family that he is going to interact with in the four gospel accounts. There's no other family that is mentioned by name with such familiarity as Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus was extremely close to this upper-class family. What happens often in the church is that we love to mention that Jesus interacted with prostitutes and Jesus loves the poor and that Jesus is against those that have money and those that have influence. But we see here that is not always the case. This wealthy, influential family was actually very close to Jesus. Jesus is not always against money and influence. 
Now, he is certainly against those that are blinded by money. He is against those that use money for their own selfish ends. The Bible has all sorts of warnings against that, those that have money, warnings against those that are greedy, those that are distracted and get thrown off the narrow road by money. Paul says that the root of money is the, uh, it, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. But money itself is not the root of all evil. Poor people are not inherently more loved by Jesus, and rich people are not inherently more opposed by Jesus. Poor people can be greedy, and rich people can be humble. What Jesus is after is those that are poor in spirit, looking to be rich in God. And that is certainly the case for this well-to-do family. And therefore, the posture of the church must be the same. Christians can sometimes, perhaps even often, judge those that are trying to minister to the middle or upper class, and we judge them as being gospel sellouts. And that should not be the case. Our goal, the mission of the church, is to get the gospel to all the people all over the world, which will necessarily include getting the gospel to the upper class. But that is not at all the main point for this morning. The main point is found in verse 25. And so let's go there right now. Verse 25. This is the fifth out of seven I am statements in the gospel according to John. This is I am statement number five. Jesus has already said, I am the bread of life. He has said, I am the light of the world. He has said, I am the door. He has said, I am the good shepherd. And now this morning, Jesus is going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life. And notice that there is the definite article, the word the before each one of these key words. Jesus says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And so those two words, resurrection and life, they are clearly related, but because of the definite article, we see that these two words are not identical. So they go hand in hand, but Jesus is making two separate points here. Let's start with the resurrection. In verse 21, Martha is a bit frustrated at Jesus. Remember from last week that Jesus intentionally waited longer before coming to help Lazarus. So Martha is saying, Jesus, if if you had been here, then my my brother would have been healed. Your delay caused my brother to die. It's it's a fair question. It's a fair concern because she's right. Jesus waited to come, which allowed Lazarus to die. And Jesus did this, as we talked at length last week, because he loved these sisters and he had a better plan. But at this point, it has now been four days since Lazarus has died. You see that in verse 17. There have been some later sources that have revealed that some Jewish people believed that the spirit of a person would hover 
for three days over the body, three days after death, the spirit would hover, and the spirit was trying to re-enter the body. And then on the fourth day, when the body began to decompose, the spirit would say, well, it is no longer possible for me to re-enter into this body. And so the spirit would then depart for good. Now, none of that is true, and Jesus is not you know, giving credence to this myth that it is not how death, that is not how the spirit of a person works. It was just a local myth. But perhaps that is why John included that detail of four days in verse 17. Because John, and even more specifically, Jesus wants to make it very clear the body is decomposing, this person is all the way dead, the spirit is not coming back, Jesus likes to be dramatic. Jesus likes to do things in such a way to show that he alone has the power, that it's not a myth or a rumor, but that Jesus has the power. So Jesus has now waited four days. The body is decomposing. The only hope now is a physical resurrection. There's a very well-known book. It was published in 1973. The book is titled The Denial of Death. This book was written by Ernest Becker. He was a a cultural anthropologist. This book went on to win a number of awards. Bill Clinton would even say it is one of his 21 most important books in his very own life. This is a very well-known book. And the main point of this book, The Denial of Death, is that humanity cannot handle our own mortality. We can't handle the thought that we are all going to die. So according to Ernest Becker, all of civilization is this very elaborate attempt at suppressing the thought of our own coming death. According to Becker, this is one of his more well-known lines, he says, we tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. It just means that we, we fill our lives with sports and entertainment and vacations and money and all these sort of trivial things are a way of keeping us distracted from our own coming death. And this is the essence of culture and then entire societies and civilizations are all constructed to keep us from thinking about what is so inevitable. And then he goes to a deeper level. He connects this basic premise to mental illness. And so at the root of depression is when a person comes to realize the world for what it really is, just trivial and meaningless, and therefore you're depressed. Or schizophrenia is when we realize that we cannot control our own destiny, and so we create our own internal worlds that we can control. Perhaps what is most interesting, though, are Becker's thoughts on religion. Ernest Becker sees organized religion as a sort of symbolic hero project. Knowing that none of us are going to last forever, religion is this symbolic means of coping, of speaking meaning into this meaningless world. So through religion, the poor, the crippled, they're all given meaning and even can become heroes in this life and heroes in the eternal sense. But all of life, according to Ernest Becker, is trying to avoid the thought of our own mortality. Anxiety, greed, the trivial, schizophrenia, religion, 
all start at the same basic foundation. Ernest Becker affirms science as being helpful, but Ernest Becker honestly says that even science cannot bring any meaning into this world. Nothing can. So this is not a very encouraging book. It's not a book that you would give your father this upcoming Father's Day. You feel pretty depressed by the end of it. By the end of this book, Ernest Becker has no solutions. His only hope is that as people progress over time and as the illusions of the trivial and the illusion of religion pass away, then perhaps society can come up with new illusions that promise a false hope. But according to Ernest Becker, there is no such thing as hope in life. You are just going to die, therefore all of life is meaningless and we live in an illusion. Ernest Becker would die very young. He would die at the age of 50 from cancer, and he did not even receive the reward, awards for his book until after his death. Now, in many ways, Ernest Becker is right. Most people do live their entire lives avoiding the thought of death, even constructing very impressive yet very trivial lives. And yes, it is true that entire civilizations have all been built on the trivial. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but John Calvin's little book on the Christian life. This is my cheap plug. I think we've got four or five copies left on the book table. Only $5. You should buy it today. And in that little book, John Calvin says that we often philosophize about death, but we act as though we ourselves are never going to die we act, we live as though we are going to live on in perpetuity. But the inevitable will come. You can't just avoid the thought of death. Death came for Lazarus. And now his sisters, Mary and Martha, are forced to engage death on a personal Level. You, you can't just run from death. Like they always say, there's two things you can't avoid, death and taxes. And even though this past year we got a, a one-month tax extension, you still had to write that big check for the government. Taxes are going to get you. And even more so, death is going to come after you. There will be a day when you encounter death. And in that moment... When you encounter death face to face, do you believe that Christianity, that the gospel itself, because of what Jesus is able to do, it is not just a utilitarian tool that helps us build an illusion, but it is the actual power of God for a physical resurrection. That we are going to rise. And we're not just talking about a metaphorical resurrection. We're not just talking about an allegorical resurrection about overcoming odds in life, but a real physical resurrection from the dead. Jesus here at the tomb of Lazarus is saying, I am the resurrection. And he is going to prove it as he will later call Lazarus out of the tomb. He is going to speak and the power of his words raises a dead man. And Jesus will forever guarantee it when he himself is laid in a tomb for three days, but will later rise in God's triumphant glory 
as the final victory of God over sin and death. Jesus is the resurrection from the dead. But like I said, it, he is not just the resurrection. He is also the life. So Jesus goes on to say, Whoever believes, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. On a, a quick surface level reading, that is a difficult verse to understand that anyone who believes shall never die because just our own human experience tells us that we know people that have died. We know Christians that have died. Some of our family members with very deep, sincere Christian faith, they, they, they have died. All the people that we respect from church history, Augustine, Martin and Catherine Luther, Elizabeth Elliot, all had deep faith in Christ and they have died. You see, even here, Martha. Martha says, she believes, and yet I haven't met the 2,000-year-old Martha walking on the earth, and so my assumption is, is that Martha died. People die even though they believe. And so from that, we can conclude that Jesus, when he mentions life here, is not talking about present biological life, but he is talking about eternal life, the kind of life that is connected to the resurrection. But when Jesus says life here, he is not just talking about the life that is to come because of the resurrection, but he is also talking about the life that we can now presently experience. That's what verse 26 means. The moment that you come to believe Jesus, because Jesus is life and because you are united to him, when you come to believe in Jesus, your true life starts. Before faith in Christ, you were dead. You were dead in sin. You were numb to God. You were addicted to a life of the trivial. As Ernest Becker would say, you have been escaping all the deeper truths of life. As John, the writer of this gospel account, would say, you've been livid in the darkness. You've been blind to reality. And yet, the moment that you come to believe, your eyes are opened. And your dead heart finally begins to beat. You were dead, but now through faith, you have been brought to life. And when you come to believe, you're alive. Really alive, even here in this present age. Alive in the fullest, truest, eternal sense. You are alive. And even when the day of death comes, the body may die. The body may go in the ground as we wait for that final resurrection. But your true life continues on forever. So what this means is, yes, we do look forward to a resurrection. But the resurrected life begins right now. The Christian life is certainly a belief that we are waiting for something better, that we are waiting something beyond this present age. But it is also the deep belief and conviction that we are experiencing true life right now in Christ. If you know Christ, then you are alive right now. 
And if you do not know Christ, then the Bible would say you are dead. One of the phrases that we repeat often here at Redeemer Presbyterian is the phrase already but not yet. And by that phrase, theologians mean that much of the Christian life is looking forward to what is to come, that the best is in front of us. There is going to be a day in the new heavens, the new earth, we'll have new resurrected bodies, there'll be no crying, there'll be no sadness, there'll be no tears, just the fullest life in the presence of God forever. That day, that kingdom is to come in the future. If you doubt me, just take a look at the news and you'll realize, yes, God's kingdom is not yet fully here. There is much sin and corruption in this world. So that kingdom is to come in the future, but the kingdom is also breaking through. Jesus has already come. Jesus has already lived. Jesus has already died. Jesus has already been resurrected. And if you are now presently united with Christ, then you can experience the resurrected life. Jesus is life. Trust in him now and your true life begins. I'm not sure if you saw the newspapers this past week, but there was a story about the new Ford train station. And this was, this was the headlines. And so I thought this, this story was going to be a big deal. The headlines were not about you know, Israel and Palestine. It was not about COVID updates, things that are shaping the world. But the, but the headlines for the newspapers were that a crew discovered a message in a bottle from 1913 in Michigan Central Station. So th- th- this is headlines. I get into these sort of things. Ford called in their historian. Front page, big deal. What is this secret message from 1913 going to be? So much excitement. People are wondering. And so this historian puts on very clean white gloves, little tweezers, pulls the message out of the bottles. And here is what the message reads. All this buildup, and here's the message. Dan Hogan and George Smith stuck this. Chicago, 1913. It's like, oh, all of that. So much excitement over Dan Hogan and George Smith. Chicago, 1913. Feels a little bit like a letdown. And often that is how we present coming to Jesus. You hear a a passionate preacher behind a pulpit, come to Jesus, repent and believe, be saved. And somebody says, okay, I'm coming to Jesus, I've repented, I believed, I'm saved. Now what? Okay, well now just spend the rest of your life waiting till you die. And that's when your true life begins. If I, well, that feels a little bit like the message in the train station bottle, just a little bit of a letdown. But it shouldn't be. If you are united with Christ, you are experiencing true life right now. Jesus lived the fullest and truest, most human life ever. If ever a man knew what it meant to live the fullest life, it was Jesus Christ. And by faith, You are now alive in Christ. 
You can experience true life right now in the present. Now, the key to all of this, the key to receiving the resurrection and the life is found in the very specific wording of verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus does not say, I will bring to you the resurrection and the life, as though Jesus is bringing something beyond himself. No, he is saying that he is it, that the the benefits are not beyond him, but he is the benefit. The resurrection is not added to Jesus. Life is not added to Jesus. Jesus is both of these things, which means the only way to experience both the resurrection in the future and this life in the present is to be in Jesus Christ. You need to know him. You need to be found in him. If I said to you after the service this morning, I am going to bring you refreshments. I will bring you coffee. I will bring you some brownies. If that were the case, you could enjoy the coffee and you could enjoy the brownies without really knowing me. I would just be a waiter. You don't really need to know the waiter. You just want to get what the waiter brings to you. But if I said to you, I am the coffee and I am the brownies, you would first think, well, this is a very poor illustration, but this poor pastor cannot think of anything better. So for the sake of the illustration, just go with it. But if I did say that, it would mean you'd have to go through me to get the brownies and the coffee. And that is what Jesus is saying right here. If you want the resurrection and if you want the life, you need to be in Christ. We live in a very pluralistic culture. Many people say there are many ways to experience the resurrection and the life. Maybe you could find it through Mohammed or maybe through Buddha or maybe through Glennon Doyle, or maybe through the Pope, and maybe even through Jesus, but they're all basically saying the same thing about being better people. So if the goal is to arrive at the mountain top, perhaps there are many paths to the top, and who is to really say which path is better if they all essentially get you to the same spot? But that is not what Jesus is saying here. He did not say, I will help get you the resurrection, I will help you get the life. No, he said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Meaning if you do not know Jesus, then you do not know the resurrection nor do you know true life because Jesus is both. No Jesus, no resurrection. No Jesus, no life. You must be united to Christ if you want to experience resurrection in life. And that is what belief is. Belief is what unites you to Christ and all the benefits of the gospel. You see the question to Martha in verse 27. Jesus will say, Martha, do you believe this? And her response is, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
She believes, and therefore she is united to Christ. And Martha is going to experience both resurrection and life. You aren't saved by belief. Belief is not what died on the cross for your sins. Belief is not the sacrifice that atones for sin. Belief was not raised from the grave. It is Jesus who saves, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the grounds for your salvation. It is not your faith that saves you. But faith is what connects you to the benefits of Christ, connects you to his resurrection and to his life. In the very same way that the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, meaning that the priest was connected to the sacrifice of that goat, by faith you reach out and you touch Jesus Christ. By faith you are united to Jesus. And sometimes the grip of faith will be strong and sometimes it will be very weak. But what matters is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of Jesus Christ. So reach out. Even with very weak faith, with trembling faith, reach out and trust in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. The question that Jesus will ask Martha is the question that is before us all this morning. Do you believe what Jesus has just said? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Ernest Becker did not. Ernest Becker believed that all of life was meaningless and that there is nothing beyond this life. Therefore, we are to live a naive life built on facades. This will be where many people will land. But do you believe in Jesus? And if you're honest with yourself, right, right, right now, to take all the other voices out of your head, to take away the professors and the news and take away social influencers and listen now to the voice of God. Because you are made in God's image, which means that you have a sense of the divine in you, in your very DNA, because you are made in God's image. You have a sense that there is more to life than just this. You have a sense built into you that life can last forever. You have a sense of God in your DNA. You know that fuller life is possible. And so listen to that sense of the divine that is built within you and believe in Christ. In Protestant reform circles, there are three aspects of what it means to have true faith. You need to have knowledge, assent, and trust. To believe in Christ, you need to have knowledge. You need to know some certain things. You don't need to know everything about Jesus, but you need to know some basic things. Things about his life, things about his death. There must be a basic knowledge. Second, you must assent to the truthfulness of the knowledge. You know, there's millions of people around the world that affirm on some level some basic principles of Christianity, but they do not assent to its truthfulness. 
So you must have knowledge, you must assent, and then finally, there must be a warm-hearted trust. And by trust, theologians mean that you would walk forward in faith, that you would place your stake in the ground, and you would say, I trust in Jesus. I know some things. I know that they are true, and I am going to build my life on Jesus Christ. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And so here is Jesus Christ. He is at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus has been killed for four days. His body is rotting. His body is decomposing. And here, Jesus will make this massive claim that will shape everything, not just about the life of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but here, Jesus makes a massive claim claim that will shape your entire life, your life now and the present, and your life for all of eternity, Jesus makes this claim. Jesus here makes a claim that no other religious prophet or teacher would ever dare to make because the stakes are far too high. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha believed in him. The question this morning is, do you? Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. We are encouraged and challenged by Martha's faith. And Lord, we ask now that by your grace and by um, the movement of the Holy Spirit, that you would give us faith, perhaps for the first time. For those of us whose faith is drifting and not very strong, oh Lord, strengthen our faith so that we might experience this present, eternal, resurrected life now and forever into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.